Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Washington commentary columnist and fellow with Christine, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. So Matt said the debt ceiling negotiations over the weekend were disastrous because Biden was away in Japan and that he needed to be back for things to uh, proceed. And then yesterday he and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy got together. And guess what? Matters have proceeded. I think we can see the light at the end of the tunnel based on the way they're both talking. There will be some kind of a putative spending freeze we don't know quite what year it might be last year as opposed to this year it might not be next year um but uh the the obvious logic of the way that they're both talking is that something is going to get done before june 1st which is what is that a week from tomorrow i guess Mm -hmm. or maybe a week from thursday um hard to see how there is no resolution of this based on the upbeat way that they both talked even though they haven't reached a deal yet but if they have some kind of weird outline sense that uh well hakeem jeffries the minority leader of the house basically said there's going to be a deal and some people aren't going to like it which is an endorsement of my theory yesterday that there that what will happen is something will be struck that will allow a bunch of Republicans on the right and a bunch of Democrats on the left to vote against it as long as everybody else votes for it. And then it'll pass with 300 plus votes in the House and go to the Senate, where presumably it will it will also pass. Does that everybody uh, anybody disagree with that, Matt? You know? uh, well, I, I think we're not quite there yet. Um, I do think it was important to have Biden and McCarthy together. Uh, They're the politicians. They both know um, uh, their respective uh, conferences or caucuses. The most ridiculous comment I've heard in the last 24 hours came from Rhode Island Democratic Senator Shelton Whitehouse, who said, don't assume that we'll just pass whatever the House passes. Uh, which is ridiculous, and Senator Whitehouse should spend more time at his Lily White Newport Country Club because he clearly has no idea what happens in American politics. Um, whatever Biden agrees to, the Democrats will support. Uh, they want the debt ceiling lifted. They want uncontrolled spending. They Their constituencies depend on the government. They, they don't want, they're not going to stand in the way of further spending, even if it means some um, reductions or caps, freezes, permitting reform, maybe some additional work requirements. I don't. Now, you know, you'll have figures like the squad who might complain about a deal and who might even vote against a deal. But um, a rule of thumb is if, you know, Ralph Norman of the Freedom Caucus and AOC of the squad both vote against a deal, that actually means that the chances of one passing. Um, is very strong. I think uh, one other point I'd like to make is the Republicans have demonstrated remarkable unity here. And it's really, I think, the source of McCarthy's strength. Uh, There have been a few 
media articles I've noticed where the reporters are like, don't forget, McCarthy could lose his speakership at any moment. And of all people, Matt Gates actually tweeted out one of these articles and said uh, in the tweet, the only people who are saying that McCarthy's job is in danger right now are the media. So if Matt Gates is behind McCarthy, uh, McCarthy has uh, he has the whip hand here. And it's not just the House Republicans either. It's also the Senate Republicans who were behind McCarthy with McConnell basically saying, look, McCarthy's in charge of this process. And even someone like Mitt Romney, typically a, a critic of um, Trump re- uh, aligned Republicans saying that, no, we need to get the spending under control here. So I think it's a combination of um, Biden's, you know, uh, and the Democrats need for the debt ceiling to be increased to keep the government running and their constituencies uh, funded uh, and Republican unity that will get us to a deal, but maybe not for another week or so. It's been interesting, hasn't it, to see the strategy that the Biden administration thought would be such a winner, which is namely to refuse to negotiate at all for so long. Just absolute intransigence on that point, assuming that McCarthy would do uh, precisely the opposite of what he somehow managed to do, as you described, Matt, which is cobble together this coalition, pass something, and then stand there and go every time a Biden administration official or Biden himself said that, you know, extreme Republicans were holding the country hostage. They're like, here's the bill. We just want to discuss it. Here's our bill. Ready to discuss it. And I think that even the media's coverage, which was heavily slanted towards the Biden administration's points, can't possibly cover up the fact that the Republicans actually did their part of the job. And now the job of negotiating falls to Biden. I think they'll get I think Biden will get some sort of symbolic Uh, tax increase on the wealthy, which in this case would just mean a uh, a a non-renewal of the 2017 Trump tax cuts. So that, but that for them would be an important symbolic achievement if if that's what they've been demanding recently. But I'm with Matt. I mean, I think they're going to get there. The fact that Biden yesterday said this was productive um, rather than they're holding us hostage is is quite a shift in tone. Yeah, the the shift in tone. I mean, Biden administration's move. Uh, in general is interesting because you saw something happen that I I wasn't at all convinced we'd see happen, which is the necessity began to overtake the politics of it. Um, We're not there yet, but, but that's sort of started to look like it, you know, um, the, 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 the need to actually come to a deal began to loom larger than the, 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 the tantalizing uh, aspect of being able to label Republicans crazy and and hostage takers. Um, I want to make a little more fun of Sheldon Whitehouse aside from his uh, Lily White Country Club. Uh, don't be so sure that we're going to vote for this, says Sheldon Whitehouse, not understanding the rules of the Senate, according to which this bill, because it is has budgetary implications, uh, only needs 51 votes to pass the Senate. So you know, 49 senators can vote against it. It can still become the Senate can still pass the bill. So I don't know who I don't know where this phalanx of people that is going to prevent the bill from being passed would come from if the president and the leader of the Republican Party in the House support it. I mean, that's that's like and that's a transparent absurdity. And he is a you know blowhard and a liar and a and a really low personality. But you know I I didn't know that his native intelligence was uh, you know should be called into question. 
I think there's a larger point, though, outside of Sheldon Whitehouse and the rules of the Senate, about uh, things that we began to get cynical about that maybe we should be less cynical about, which is to say Kevin McCarthy did what leaders of parliamentary bodies are supposed to do, which is shepherd a bill toward some sort of passage. And over the last, really since Trump, well, you could even say since Obama started saying, I have a phone and a pen and I can can completely transcend this process and just sort of dictatorially deem things law. Um, For Trump and a lot of Trump's fans, actual achievements became considerably less important than the optics or the argument or the fight or something like that. And, you know, in some ways, when we sat during the first year, year and a half of the Trump administration, kind of uh, puzzled by the fact that he would torpedo possible arrangements and deals that were of use to him. Paul Ryan trying to figure out how to pay for the wall. Uh, whether or not, you know, we could pass, they they could pass the um, overturn of Obamacare with a two-year period in which they could figure out what would replace Obamacare, which Trump also torpedoed and things like that, because he didn't really care about getting victories or notches of victories like that under his belt. And it almost seemed like politics was being rearranged in this pseudo-event It's all about the fight. It doesn't really matter what comes out in the end thing. And now the Republicans, I think, are kind of luxuriating in the fact that they did something sober and balanced and kind of, you know, following the legit, the the logic of, you know, what it means to be a member of Congress. Don't get too excited, John. Uh, I'm not not that excited. I know, but we're not there yet. We're not. They haven't put on their big boy pants yet and um, marching toward responsibility. One reason they could pass the bill was they essentially knew it wasn't going to go anywhere. And so they McCarthy was in a position where he could concede quite a bit uh, to the right uh, in in the House Republican conference. One key um, aspect uh, uh, of this whole debate that I think has been left um, uh, ignored is the outside groups, the Heritage Actions, the Center for American Renewal, um, the groups that typically are against Republican leadership on anything and actually live for the fight that you're talking about. They uh, backed McCarthy on the uh, Limit Save Grow Act. earlier this uh, month that gave McCarthy all the the leverage going into these negotiations. I don't know where they're going to land on a potential deal. That's the big question mark in my mind. If McCarthy emerges with some sort of deal and these outside groups uh, say, oh, no, no go, vote against it, we're going to score against it, that's big trouble. It means it might not get through the House. So I imagine that he's well aware of that fact and um, trying to bring them along as well. But we're not there yet. And that's why I also think that it's not like they're going to come out of these negotiations in the next two, 48 hours and say we have a deal. We will have to wait until um, the Treasury Department says that's it. Um, and we may have the government shutdown. Um, we might not have a default 
uh, because, in fact, the Biden administration and Secretary Yellen are being very disingenuous about how how soon a default is. I mean, we still, you know, we still get revenue uh, to the Treasury that they can then prioritize to pay uh, outstanding debt. They can roll over debt. Um, but nonetheless, I do think it's going to be the very last minute, just so even McCarthy can say to the outside groups, this is it. We need to do it. Okay. I want to defend myself on this because when things happen, when when events occur like this bill passing, they 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 alter the timeline going forward. Um, whether or not that bill was meant for final passage, which it obviously wasn't, it was a sea change for this Republican caucus, which has evinced no interest in acting like the leadership body of a legislature, a majority body of a legislature. This is what majority bodies and legislatures do, is that they get together to pass bills, even even when they don't have the presidency in their hands and can't ensure that those bills, you know, eventually become law. And having had this experience with this bill, seeing how it has thrown the Democrats into confusion and Biden into into sort of this weird series of tap dances and backs and forths and stuff like that, makes the case for going forward by doing things that Trump obscured by by the bread and circuses approach that he had which is an approach that may have worked for him personally. It was, of course, disastrous for the party. And um, and in the end, self-defeating. Because, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I mean, I, I hope that's true. I think it's a one-off because other issues aren't this pressing. Um, the stakes are not as high, and you can you can continue to play the, the, the Trump game um, on them, whereby... It's more important not to have a deal with your political enemy than it is to have an accomplishment that was achieved by negotiating with your enemy. I mean, I think you're you're all you're you're both right. I'm not saying that, you know, this is this changes everything. I'm saying that it adds to these people who did not have this tool in their toolkit somehow. Conceptually, they didn't have the toolkit that, you know, we can use the fact that we are legislators to work our will as opposed to we can use the fact of our being legislators to go on Fox. It it it, it gives them more opportunities to to flex their muscles and yeah. do things. And, 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 you know, and it's not just the uh, debt ceiling. I mean, they passed an immigration bill. They've yeah. passed the Parental Rights uh, version of the Parental Rights Act. Um, they forced uh, uh, the Democratic-controlled Senate to vote to overturn the D.C. criminal justice reform. Yeah. Yeah. They got rid of the even before he uh, became Speaker. McCarthy helped pressure uh, uh, the Biden administration into ending the COVID vaccine mandate for U.S. Armed Forces personnel. So um, he the difference is. The difference between Trump and McCarthy, uh, and the, the the differences between them, even though they are allies, 
uh, are manifold. And I also think there's a clear difference between McCarthy and not only Paul Ryan, but Ryan's predecessor speaker, John Boehner. I'm convinced that Boehner just did not like most of the Tea Party uh, congressmen who showed up after the 2010 election. He didn't like them personally. He didn't understand them at all. And so he was in an antagonistic relationship with a significant part of his own conference. Paul Ryan didn't ever wanted the job as speaker. He was forced into it. He accepted it. He did the best he could. But also Ryan comes from a different background. He's a protege of Jack Kemp. His version of conservatism is very different from Donald Trump's, right? I mean, Ryan uh, is about, as the uh, title of one of Kemp's books put it, the American idea. Trump is about American carnage. Kevin McCarthy is the first Republican speaker we've had um, in a decade who actually likes his conference, (laughs) understands them because he actually recruited most of them, right? Um, And wants to be Speaker of the House. Right. And (laughs) so you have this amazing situation where, oh man, the Speaker of the House of Representatives is a Republican who wanted the job and who is in sympathy maybe not in agreement, but at least gets his own conference. This is an amazing development. And what and it's also the fact that McCarthy, uh, you know, is, is not, I'm not calling him Teflon, but he's a very different personality than any of his predecessors, right? He is not um, Brian the Wonk. He is not Boehner the Weeper. He is not Hastert the Creep. He's not delay the hammer and he's not Gingrich the Gingrich, right? This Napoleonic figure who decided, oh, I'm now going to be president since we took over the House for the first time in 40 years. So I think Biden and the Democrats have had trouble with McCarthy. They can't polarize him in the same way uh, that they've been able to do earlier speakers. And what it's led to is so far uh, a, just a, a winning hand for Republicans in this debate including the idea, and this may be why so many uh, Republicans right now in the House are continuing to back McCarthy. They understand that, look, we get one bite at the apple now, but we'll find another way to get another bite at the apple. We'll We'll get something now, and then we'll get something later. We'll figure this out. I think that's instilled confidence in McCarthy's leadership. Well, and I would add that they the the Democrats have also tried to rely on the press to do the job of undermining McCarthy's leadership. The Politico ran this ridiculous piece where they're like, these debt limit negotiations are McCarthy's second job interview for speaker. I mean, they're really trying to make fetch happen with with his him being weak and and feckless. And, you know, look, we sat on this podcast when he was running for the for the job, pointing out the ways in which he might might be feckless. Um, but I think Matt's absolutely right. Someone who actually wants that power and and knows how to use it. That's what the Democrats had with Pelosi for many, many years. And the Republicans haven't had a version of that for a while, even when they've had the power. I, I just think going into 2024, should there be uh, contested or close races or people being primaried in the Republican race, you could have the phenomenon of people that you never thought would take this line of argument in their race saying, 
I passed this. I voted for that. You you sent me to Washington and here's what I did. I, you know, I got I was part of the crew that got rid of the vaccine mandate. I was part of the crew that, you know, we passed law tightening the border. This was not the language. This has not been the language of the post Tea Party right in in it's they've been fighting larger battles in a very evanescent way. Uh, largely centering on their personalities and the personalities of the people that they oppose. And as I say, it just gives them a little more material to work with. Um, you know, it gives them, it's like if you're a pitcher, you have a fastball, you need to get a you need to get a breaking ball or a slider or a curve. And they've all been running in one way. And now, you know, this. I'm saying it may be infectious. They're getting a taste of this just from the litany of things that they've succeeded in doing in the last five months um that's more i i think in the end given what they do all day is a little more satisfying you know the the trump is like empty calories this this is something else you know it's kind of it's got meat on its bones now you know i don't know that somebody like matt gates can even digest something with meat on uh, you know on its bones but maybe maybe he can and maybe it just alters the trajectory of the party's um, addiction to social, cultural, media platform warring because everybody wants to be a little more substantial. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, most people would like to be able to claim that they have a little substance behind their, you know, behind their assertions. So I'm not, yeah. Can I throw something out there? Yeah. Uh, and uh, it may be weirdly uh, hel- helpful uh, that uh, the Democrats are in control of the Senate because it's basically removed the Senate um, from this negotiation. Um, and th- we spent a lot of time in recent years trying to figure out what legislation can pass the Senate, um, including, you mentioned, the uh, repeal of Obamacare, which, uh, you know, Trump obviously f- fussed around, but it was McCain who torpedoed that. Um, now, no one's caring about the Senate other than Sheldon Whitehouse, who is, seems to me to be desperate for attention. The Everyone, including the senators, are worried about what's passing the House. And the, Sen- and the, the senators, they don't do anything. Uh, the, the only the, literally they're on holiday all the time they're wandering around aimlessly <laughs> they're going to ball games that all they do is vote on Joe Biden's judicial nominees right and so you don't have the uh figures in the Republican party who if the constellation of forces were different might have been incentivized to you know, speak from their platforms. You know, you don't have Rand Paul going around saying, well, unless we eliminate five cabinet departments, I'm you don't have my vote. Uh, Ted Cruz is he's basically on message. Right. Uh, so not having the Senate be a factor here may actually have been a contributing uh, force to to McCarthy's negotiating position. OK, let's talk about one of those Republican senators in a minute. But first, uh, let me point out to you guys that um, you have to admit that when you were in high school or college, uh, learning a second language probably wasn't the high point in your academic career. I myself took five languages. The last language I took was Russian. I took two years of Russian in college 
And I think I can recite one line of a poem by Pushkin and say hello and goodbye. And that's all I got for you. Uh, but now, thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be traveling abroad, not that I, along with Matt Continetti, will be traveling to Russia to speak Russian, because, of course, Matt... Is, uh, I know. thought you were going to be my translator, John. <laughs> well, you know, I will. If you get back in, I will go to Babbel and I will study Russian so that I can be your translator. And therefore, I will help you connect in a deeper way. Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. It's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Babbel's expertly crafted lessons are built around real life. You'll learn how to have practical conversations about travel, relationships, business, and more. Other language le learning apps use AI for their lesson plans. Boo! But Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts, humans, not robots, your teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. You can choose from 14 different languages. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. And there are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, video stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash commentary. That's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash commentary for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel language for life. And let me also talk to you about our friends at Bowl and Branch. And Abe will also tell you that in his newly wedded bliss, he and his wife have been sleeping on Bull and Branch sheets. Isn't that correct? We have, and it has made a great difference in our sleep. Um, it's funny. I was thinking when we got, when the when the sheets first arrived, uh, and we took them out of the box, and my wife was looking at them and felt them, and she said, um, there is no way that these aren't going to be unbelievably comfortable when we wash them and get them on the bed. And they were. She was right. It was evident from, from the get-go. Well, Bowling Branch is the bedding expert, making the highest quality sheets with incredible craftsmanship. And each sheet set is slow made for an unmatched softness with 100% traceable organic cotton that gets softer with every wash. Okay, they feel buttery to the touch. They're super breathable, so they're perfect for both cooler and warmer weather. Over 10,000 rave reviews on the internet. Loved by millions of sleepers. Come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes from Twin Up to California King. Made without toxins. Free from synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. They fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. And best of all, Bowlin Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. So sleep better at night with Bowlin Branch sheets. Get 15% off your first order when you use promo code COMMENTARY at BowlinBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code COMMENTARY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quote, Joe Biden and the left are attacking every single rung on the ladder that helped me to climb. With those words, directly after he spoke those words, Senator Tim Scott, in a speech yesterday, declared himself a candidate for president of the United States. And in that one sentence, I think you can see the entirety of his campaign appeal. He climbed, 
There's a ladder. America provided a ladder for him. The 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 grandson of a man who had to leave school in the third after the third grade to pick cotton in South Carolina ends up a uh, ends up a member of a city council, a member of the state senate, appointed to the senate, then elected as a senator and now presidential candidate. Um, this is a great country. And the problem that we face, according to him, is that Joe Biden and the left are trying to do things that will make it impossible for people to follow my path. I am an exemplar. Here's how I did it. Here's what America did for me. And they're they're trying to they're trying to end this land of opportunity. And I will bring it to you. Is that a winning presidential message for 2024? Can, can I, before I answer your question, can I just point out something he did that was extremely um, rhetorically interesting and I think powerful? He says, we're, he said, we are not a nation in decline, we're a nation in retreat. And that might not seem like a huge distinction, but what that suggests, and I think it, it fits with what he was saying about Biden and the left, is that retreat is a choice. That's a strategy to retreat from from values you might hold dear, whereas decline is something a little more amorphous. And and pessim- it's a pessimistic view of what's been happening in the country. So his optimism was, was incredible. I, I mean, his biography, I went back and revisited some of the details of it. He defeated a son of Strom Thurmond in one of his races when he was a young politician. I mean, uh, raised by a single mom, um, you know, just absolutely uh, uh, converted to Christianity in college. He worked as an insurance salesman. I mean, he has an interesting background that that has nothing to do with the kind of inside the beltway uh, wealth generating, you know, uh, political thing that most senators have. Um, obviously, I think it it puts him in direct opposition to his former benefactor Nikki Haley when she was governor who appointed him. They're now both in the race. And it struck me, and perhaps this is a sign of, I don't want to say it's a sign of sexism in politics, but she has a similar message, sort of trying to be a little more optimistic. But somehow when she presented her announcement for presidency, I didn't. it didn't land the same way his did. He really was passionate in his approach. If people haven't seen some of the clips, they should go and watch them. I mean, he, he was enthusiastic. He was happy to be there. I mean, the, the, he has a sort of happy warrior aspect about him. Um, and his faith, he, he brought his faith to the fore, brought his mother on stage. Um, I think, I think, no, though, I'm not sure it's going to be enough. <laughs> I, I hate to say it because I want it to be enough. I, I don't know if that if that very charming, optimistic, hopeful, powerful message is is enough for the Republican base. I hope it is. It, it's certainly what I like to hear as a conservative leading person. But you forgot the other the other data point that instantly became uh, uh, sent around uh the political class is, you know, he's a never married man with no children. And that would be mark him as unusual in the history of the presidency. We've only had two unmarried men become president in previous centuries. So that's another that'll be on voters' minds as well. He's he's kind of vaguely addressed it, but but that's a that's a question people will have. Um, well, I mean, what's so interesting about that question is that not only is his message, his positive message, his campaign message, a throwback. But that issue is almost a quaint issue compared to the things you can be now and and be a viable candidate and not have it questioned. But somehow, when you pair up his his sort of throwback message with his sort of throwback issue of being a a bachelor, 
it becomes this sort of like 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 you know trip back in time to oh I don't I don't know like you know we're suddenly placed in in, in more conservative times. Well, I I, I want to talk a little bit about the bachelor thing because of course the question is whether this is coded for will be coded for something else and obviously Donald Trump will use anything to hand as a weapon if he thinks that there's a threat and who knows how he'll how he'll put it. I do think that we're in a different place in, in the United States, even though the Republican Party tends now to be the party of families and the Democratic Party tends to be a party of singletons and not tends to be, but like there are a lot of singletons, a lot of never married people who are now living in a time in which, I don't know, don't they don't they say something like 50% of people you know, now will not get married. Um, so it certainly isn't the disqualifying factor that it would have been at any other time in the last hundred years, because presidents need to seem like they bear, they have some relation to the ordinary lives of everyday Americans. And the easiest and most direct way to do that is to have a family because everybody has a family. And so if they don't have a family, then that's weird. It's just less weird than it used to be. Maybe it's weird in Republican circles. I'm not sure. And well, also, can I just, okay. I'm just going to yeah. interrupt, sorry for a minute to say what's weird in my opinion. I, I It doesn't bother me at all that he's, that he yeah. might be, you know, uh, another bachelor in the white house, but it, and I think actually younger voters are probably not going to be as bothered by that. What's annoying is that I'm sorry, Republicans, Republicans who elect, you know, philandering thrice married, you know, yeah. absolute monsters in terms of their relationships with their wives and go, but you know, I just feel, I feel more secure because he's got a wife and kids. I'm like, well, he's had four wives and he never spends time with his kids but you're right he's right yeah. on point so it's there's a lot of hypocrisy embedded in the idea that a many married and divorced philandering politician is better than someone who's remained a bachelor and uh, you know scott does have a family and he's gonna it's just his uh his birth family <laughs> and he relies a lot on his mother his mother was there at the announcement it was very moving when he brought her on stage he uh, has a brother uh, a nephew that also spoke at the uh, announcement and he'll rely on that um his brother his brother is a is a is a career military man yep yep yeah. and um i do think it says a lot about american politics that you're that we're like oh yeah here's a really nice guy who loves his country no way he could ever be the Republican nominee for president. <laughs> you know, I mean, what does that say? Uh, I don't know. I, That's I, what I'm asking. I, I think with Tim Scott, the the the, the question is, um, does the uh, good media he receives and will continue to receive translate into a popular constituency? And while there are a lot of high expectations for his candidacy, many people saying that, you know, He's number three in the pecking order, really, in uh, in terms of potential uh, Trump, DeSantis, and then Scott. Um, he's still polling at one percent. Um, he still uh, comes from a state, South Carolina, that uh, not only does he have a, a rival uh, South Carolinian running, Nikki Haley, the state is very Trumpy. I thought it was a very interesting quote in one of the write-ups of his announcement. Uh, in the papers this morning where there's a 21 year old Republican uh, male who attended. And the, the young man said to the reporter, I think it's time for a change. I really like Tim Scott, but you know, my dad, he didn't even want me to come here. He's so pro Trump. 
And I thought that quote really illustrated some of the tensions within the Republican Party. Um, eh, I, I wish Tim Scott well. I think there's nothing but upside for him, because even if he doesn't win anything and has to bow out pretty early on, he'll elevate his name. He'll go back into the Senate with more influence. Um, he could end up as vice president or a cabinet. He could even win. I mean, it's not inconceivable. He yeah. could win. Um, but uh, it is funny that it, you look at him uh, and you think, wow, here's a really good politician with an uplifting message. Man, it will be amazing if he does better than 5% in the polls. He he does have the backing of Oracle founder Larry Ellison. So he does have, in, in that sense, that puts him, gives him a little added value in terms of how uh, long uh, he might last in this race compared to, say, a Nikki Haley. Yeah, a lot of resources. Well, a yeah, lot I mean, of re- What does he have in the bank? He has something 80? like 30. It's something like 30. On he has hand, 22. He's got $22 million that were left over from his uh, Senate fundraising. And then I think Ellison has somehow given him eight. So yeah, he's got 30 million. He's going to spend 8 million in Iowa. That will be the test, right? If this ad spend in Iowa and the fact that he's probably going to basically move to Iowa because that's his play is going to be Iowa. If he starts to rise in Iowa, if there's evidence that his focus on a presidential bid in one place is, is reaping fruit, then then there'll be real reason to think that something interesting is going on there that you really are going to have to take very, very seriously. Well, I mean, talk about uh, having to take on Trump. Um, He's going to have to do it um, from a a, a polar opposite direction of of the, the, the Trump base here, right? I mean, he's their their messages are so completely at odds. Um, he cannot shy away from going after Trump on running down the country uh, on the American carnage uh, uh, message. Does he have that in him? I, well, I don't know. We're not there yet. I mean, it was very revealing uh, Trump's uh, message on Truth Social yesterday, welcoming Scott into the race saying that he would be a real improvement over Ron Sanctimonious, right? So Trump is welcoming in uh, Scott to the race because he believes the more non-Trump candidates there are, the better his position uh, becomes. Um, So I I don't expect either of them to confront each other, and they may never confront each other if Scott doesn't take off, and it's still just a a Trump-DeSantis contest. Okay, let's... um... Let's continue this conversation, but let's take a a second here. Something occurred to me that I think is patently obvious to everybody else, but for some reason didn't occur to me before, which is what makes this race so unusual in the Republican Party and why all of our protestations that other candidates are going to have to go at Trump in order to dislodge him um, are are completely, uh, is a completely sort of, banal and obvious, which is that Trump is the first person running uh, for a president for office for the presidency as a challenger who is the incumbent. Trump is in almost all respects the Republican Party's incumbent president. And so so a, it's really hard to dislodge an incumbent. 
And B, the only way you dislodge an incumbent is to go for the incumbent's jugular, at least on issues. You don't have to do it. I mean, in Trump's case, you probably do have to do it on personality and on personal peccadilloes uh, because that's really, you know, that's that's part of the source of people's discomfort with him and you want to emphasize it. But on these very rare occasions, I mean, where you drive someone, I mean, I'm trying to think when when this would have been. You know, it's like basically McCarthy and and RFK against Lyndon Johnson is sort of like pretty much the only example that we have in a in a presidential race. There are plenty in gubernatorial and senatorial races and in, in over time. Um, they have no choice. Like there's no point in running. It, it it will be hard for the Republican Party to give up its incumbent. That's what that 21-year-old and his dad are having this generational conflict over. Um, and so that's the kind of genius of Trump's bid here and why, when you think about it, again, there wouldn't wouldn't have been anybody except for George H.W. Bush and uh and uh Jimmy Carter who could have done this. So maybe it's a, but I mean you think like people don't really realize what it means, what what the fame of an ex-president is and what can be done with it. Now, you know, again, like I'm not sure everybody else was a two-termer, so they couldn't run for president again. Being in any other office would be kind of like a demotion. So it's not like they would you'd be Barack Obama and you run for Senate or something like that. But it's a pre- pretty powerful place to be at the center of our politics and culture if you want if you want to be there. If you want to say, I'm not leaving, I'm staying, including you would win any Senate seat of your choice, you know, you could get someone to appoint you to the Supreme Court in five seconds. I don't know. It just strikes me that that this is a this is something new and uh, that Trump is, I would say, is kind of playing his hand perfectly because that's what he's he's being himself the way he was when he was president with the people who like him and they you know and and he's other people now have to have to affirmatively compel voters to turn away from him but that that's where that's where scott actually in this race offers a true alternative of someone who's plausibly got the experience to do the job of president. And, and by that, I mean, if you look at the the Trump-DeSantis battle, um, it struck me the other day, uh, someone had asked me about the Disney-DeSantis ongoing, you know, spat. And I thought, you know, there's a moment where politicians have an option to compromise and our system's actually built to encourage that, certainly the division of power among the three branches and the way Congress works. And that hasn't been working lately. But DeSantis has named his super PAC is called Never Back Down, very Trumpian approach to politics. And he he has, I think, got himself painted into a corner on the Disney thing, because although I think the the most recent news that they were going to not build this you know new office park there was going to happen anyway, politically, it's, it looks like a, a loss for him on the just before he's about to announce. Tim Scott is all about negotiating in areas with people across the aisle that do matter to people. He's done interesting work on opportunity zones and distressed neighborhoods. He's reached across the aisle to talk about criminal justice reform, but hasn't gone so far as to to endorse the sort of defund police types. He actually has done a lot legislatively. His record could could be a very good 
uh, resume to present to the American people about how politics used to work. And and in a sense, the throwback could be a boon for him if people are, don't want to see another Trump-Biden head to head. I But the Republican base voter, the primary voter, doesn't likely want that, at least from what we've seen. Um, so he's going to have to at least go for Trump's jugular at at some level. And that might be just to say this man's unfit to, to be president. He's just unfit. Um, and Scott actually has the the I think he's got the sort of reputation that 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 he can say that. Um, um, I would just John, I think you uh, kind of came uh, upon a really great uh, solution to the Republican Party's difficulties, which would be some deal where Trump is nominated for the Supreme Court <laughs> in exchange for not pursuing the Republican nomination and Trump on the court would be something to see you know yeah. he doesn't he wouldn't have to issue full rulings it could just be truths truth truths his truth posts you know uh but uh but really the supreme court's always been a political position anyway um this, this you is know like a right-wing west-wing plot this is like you know <laughs> if, if aaron the, sorkin the, the, if the aaron thing. sorkin were Rob have Long, to, you, you know could, look could, he uh, could zoom in he could zoom in from mar-a-lago he wouldn't yeah. have to be there um now, it may make the progressives more interested in court packing, but so that would be the potential downside. Look, I mean, you're, John's absolutely right. This is an unprecedented situation, and it's not unprecedented because of Donald Trump. And the closest thing we've had to this uh, was, uh, in, uh, or the more recent, actually, most recent, was Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford flirted with a presidential run as late as 1980. Yeah. When he finally said, I wasn't going to, he wasn't going to run. Why didn't he run? Because he realized everything from the presidency is a step down. And he also felt that, you know, it maybe it was time to and Reagan um, clear the stage. Reagan almost nominated Ford as his vice president. People right. forget that Ford <laughs> then weirdly overplayed his hand, uh, right. thinking that he was more, it was going to be co-president. Choice. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, he had to, he was supposed to end up being like, in charge of foreign policy or right. something like that. Um, and so that was, you know, obviously preposterous, but it was, there were, there were two days at the Republican convention in 1980, where the story was the negotiations between Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan for Ford to take the number two slot on the ticket. And you know, what stopped it was Gerald Ford had a sense of humility which Donald Trump does not. And because Donald Trump cannot accept either privately or publicly, the fact that he lost the 2020 election and he has no sense of humility, uh, he will not cede the stage. He won't. He will not. And I think uh, it also points out one other thing, which is the incredibly thuddingly imaginative political life and approach of one Al Gore. I thought that it was crazy for Gore not to declare that he was going to run again in 2004 because his argument was that he had won in 2000 and that remains an arguable proposition. Like if he lost, he lost by a thousand votes in one state. If he, yeah, he did lose, he lost by, you know, many recounts had Bush winning, but he won 500,000 more votes nationwide. And he, should have run for president in 2004. And he was too unimaginative to understand that this was an option 
for him, in my view, and showed that he was risk averse and 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 chicken and probably crazy and stuff like that. That's so. In, in some sense, Trump doing what he's doing here is an endorsement of this opinion I had 21, 22 years ago, particularly in the course of two thousand and three, when everybody looked like a pygmy and kind of turned out to be a pygmy. Right. I mean, John Kerry ended up winning on this factitious idea that he was a war hero who, you know, who would who would do the right thing militarily when his entire life had been based on the fact that he threw his medals away. Uh, You know, so that was really a bad and Gore could have said this is the restoration and look what's happened here. I'm not president. And Bush came in and 9-11 happened and we did we went to war in Iraq in a way that wasn't really all that. I would have either done it better or I wouldn't have done it at all. I can't, you know, it's hard. I'm just saying, like, I'm not saying Trump is imaginative, but uh, but but precedent and things like that are of no consequence to him. But Well, I think it's he's sort of the opposite of imaginative in that. Normally, after you're your president, you go on to lead this sort of incredible post-presidency life, you know. Um, you and can, not if you lose. You, no, 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 no. I mean, the first couple Fair of enough. years after you lose, if you're if you're Carter or you're H.W. Bush, that those were not happy years like 93, 94, 95. For, Fair enough. But OK, yeah, but okay. I'm thinking recently. Obama is like now he's yeah. this grand cultural figure. He's an entertainment mogul. He's always Trump had that life already. He had that pre-president. Right. So for him, where where's he going to go? He might well, as well stay here. That's a that's a that's a very solid point. He's also rich, so he doesn't get, you know, it's not like Clinton, Clinton and Hillary go off and, you know, get rich. And yeah, so he's got no other mountain to climb except to do this thing that no one else has done before. Um, I think that's a that's a really good point. Abe, today you are our featured speaker on our segment commentary recommends. I am. And I'm going to recommend something with some reservations, but I it on balance, I recommend it nonetheless. Look, we're going to have to make a ton of recommendations here. You know, every week, I don't find things in my normal life that I like once a week normally. So, so we're, there's going to be some that are that you're going to recommend. You have to go through to. your paper, the papers you wrote in high school and college. Like you have to go into right. the into the Geniza, find your papers, and then see you know what what you like then. But go ahead. But uh, having said that, I I do actually genuinely recommend this and. Uh, this was brought on by so the death of Martin Amos, the uh, British novelist, on I think uh, Saturday at age seventy-three. Uh, Amos was a big figure for me uh, in my twenties. Uh, I, I was an Amos completist. I read all his novels. I read his memoirs. I got a hold of the video game book, which is you know like will cost you five hundred dollars used today or whatever. Um, and uh, I I really just sort of ate up everything he wrote because he had um, an infectious style um, and a, a, a really unique way of making the the sort of story almost come off the page. Uh, uh, you know, cre- he was a great sort of world creator, I think, with language, um, and that that's very much uh, my kind of fiction. Um, and then uh, over the years, 
somewhat sorry to say this because he's he's recently passed. I, I grew sort of sick of him as a figure. Um, his his sort of you know blowharding about America and conservatism and various things. Um, he his self regard, I think, above all else, um, sort of started to wear on me. So I, I kind of fell off him a little bit. But um, when he died, I took the opportunity to read the one book of his that I had not read, which was his final novel. He calls it a novel, Inside Story, which he wrote in 2020. Uh, and I hadn't read it. I had bought it, and it, it was just sitting there, and I didn't read it because I had sort of fallen off my 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 Amos kick uh, uh, a few years ago. So I read it. It's very long, and I read it. Um, and he calls in a novel. It's really something else. There are novelistic aspects to it. There are essays. Um, there's a, a lot of sort of writing on writing, um, which I think is great. He's great when he writes about writing and writes about the sort of mysterious process of it. It is about his life. Um, it is about his interaction with Philip Larkin, the Pope Philip Larkin, uh, American novelist Saul Bellow, who, who Amos has, I think, had a genuinely um, sincere um, love and kind of worship for, uh, and his, his lifelong friendship with Christopher Hitchens. Um, so if you're interested in any of those figures and in the inter interaction between them, it's worth it. Um, and it's worth it because there is still a ton of dazzling writing in it. Um, he says in the book that he he expects and hopes people will sort of flip through it, go skip ahead, go back, put it down. Um, and uh, he's right. That is, that is how you will read it, because because it is this sort of hodgepodge of of um, different versions of writing. It's not it's. It is not, it is very far from a straightforward novel, but um, he did something sort of fascinating in it nonetheless. And it's a good place if you haven't read him. First of all, you get a, a sense of, of, of his life. Um, and you will also, real if you haven't read him, um, you will read it and you'll understand what the fuss is about, why, why he is um, admired by so many um, as, as, a, as a stylist. I don't like his politics um, at all. Uh, his he's got a, I think a sort of a flamboyant philosemitism that always rubs me the wrong way. Um, he's he he goes on and on about his first love being a Jew, and he's always felt this you know sort of this sort of theatrical uh, uh, love of the Jewish people, and then he's nevertheless got some very silly things to 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 say about Israel. Um, None, as I say, it's a qualified recommendation, but I do recommend it because it, it, it is enjoyable nonetheless. So that's Inside Story? Inside Story. So uh, Abe knows this, talked about this offline. I'm not I'm not an admirer of Martin Amos. I'm the only person that I know who doesn't, didn't at least have, at the very least, a youthful flirtation with martin amos i never liked him i remember reviewing a book of his a collection of sort of um, uh, didactic short stories called einstein's monsters in the 1980s which is about the evil of nuclear weapons like five interconnected stories about the evil of nuclear weapons the pomposity of which i found <laughs> insufferable 
but I will say this about him, uh, that um, part of my distaste for him was his existence in a circle of people, the most notable uh, being Hitchens. But he was at the center of a literary crowd in London. He, Hitchens, Ian McEwen, Julian Barnes, a couple of other people. Um, and the um, they were sort of like the smugocracy of England. Um, and there was something there was something about their self-regard and their assertion of superiority and their uh, efforts to outwit each other and be you know as witty as they you know sort of like Algonquin roundtable stuff, which I know people love and they think that's what I I find that somewhat um, uh, uh, cringe-inducing so much so that I wish for example I felt about the novelist Ian McEwen as I feel about Martin Amos, but he's too good for me to dislike. <laughs> he he unlike Amos overcame. Uh, that that feeling, and but I never recovered. I don't think he was as closely Einstein's tied masters. to the circle. It's interesting because the the most writing about that circle um, uh, that I found most compelling is the chapter on it in Hitchens's memoir, <clears throat> Hitch Twenty Two. And yeah, I think he actually notes that McEwen was always slightly owlish and kind of quiet at those lunches right, that would yeah. last a whole day. And the more active participants were Amos and. Um, Salman Rushdie in particular, and then yeah. and then Hitch as well. Um, Inside Stories, uh, interesting pick. Uh, I got frustrated with it. Um, uh, I don't know why. I mean, it may have actually been in. It's ironic in the in the, in the Hitchens Amos dynamic. I've always been more Hitchens, um, uh, and yet Hitchens lost a big argument with Amos, and that was over uh, Stalin. Uh, Amos published a nonfiction book around the turn of the century called Koba the Dread, uh, where he goes into uh, the awful historical legacy of Stalinism, the murderousness of communism. He draws a lot from the historian Robert Conquest, who was a friend of his father's, King, the novelist Kingsley Amos. And Hitchens attacked him in the Atlantic in one of Hitchens' weaker pieces, and there were a lot of weaker pieces, um, and Amos responded. So I, so Cope of the Dread would also be worth reading. And then of the, the great trilogy, um, Money, London Fields, and the Information, I confess I've only read two of the three. I, I have not read London Fields yet. I, I'm going to try to read it this summer. But uh, I'd pick the information. But I think, Abe, you're a money guy. I like all of them, uh, but I actually um, I like London Fields most. Okay, yeah, that's Caldwell. That's Christopher Caldwell's favorite is London Fields oh. too. Um, interesting thing about uh, Robert Conquest, Kingsley Amos, Martin Amos's um, father, and very interesting phenomenon, which is that um, Martin is uh, the rare uh, son of a of a, a highly distinguished literary figure who probably transcended his father and became more famous uh, than his father, who uh, who had a, a, a two-stage career, uh, Kingsley, which is that he, he became enormously famous in the 1950s writing an academic satire called Lucky Jim, which is a book that sort of everybody of that age read and thought was hilarious and world-changing. And then he kind of went into a 20-year period of decline and then he came roaring back in the 1980s in his 60s he wrote a book called the old devils which is a beautiful fascinating piece of writing about getting old 
Um, and then Martin came along and kind of just sort of lapped him. But Kingsley was, you know, very close friends, both with Robert Conquest uh, and with Larkin, with Philip Larkin, uh, probably the greatest uh, English writer, the greatest English writer of the last, uh, you know, I don't know, not maybe not 100 years, 75 years, whatever. But one of the things that they did with each other is that they sent each other absurd, obscene limericks. The three of them sent each other in the mail obscene lit. They sat around writing obscene limericks and then sending them uh, to each other, none of which apparently have really survived or <laughs> were. Uh, and so um, that's a pretty, you know, if you sort of think about it, Conquest, the great historian of the Great Terror. Kingsley Amos sort of leading now, and Philip Larkin, uh, the greatest poet in the English language, sending each other dirty limericks. Can I just add? So I I, I don't like Amos, um, and I actually grew to really dislike. I've only I, the book that really triggered me was Coba the Dread, because not because of the subject matter, not because he and he was absolutely correct on the ideological uh, stance he took. It was so sanctimonious. It was so full of moral superiority and smugness that I, I remember several times just going, ah, and like setting it aside. See, but then unlike you guys, I was always the Julian Barnes fan in that crowd. He was another sort of member. And I, I really, I know a lot of people don't like Julian Barnes. I always liked him. I find his work very charming. He's not, he doesn't try too hard to make a political point. He's never sanctimonious. I, I really liked his Noise of Time, which tries to sort of channel Shostakovich, the composer. And I've always found his work very charming. And I guess because I tend to read fiction to remove myself from the political battlefield, of that group, he was the one I, I found the most delightful as a sort of, you know, something to do and to read for pleasure. I just want to add, the, as I got off my my Martin kick, I got into Kingsley. Um, uh, so so that when when uh, by the time that uh, I heard the news, I sort of went looking for like my Amos books and I didn't really have I, I I didn't have all the all the all the old Amos books that I had all the old Martin books that I once had, but I have these uh, Kingsley books and I want to I'll, I'll make a double recommendation here, which is dangerous because it's one I could have used somewhere down the line. You know, these are you got to store them up here, um, but it's a good one because it's it's not well known at all. Kingsley Amos wrote what is essentially like a young adult novella called We Are All Guilty. I think it's from the early 90s, maybe from the late 80s. And it's about like a, a, a teenage hood um, who uh, uh, sort of learning to accept responsibility um, and uh, and the, the, the culture around him and the society that sort of doesn't want to actually blame him for, for anything. Um, really, really good. Not well known. You read it in an hour. Great. Well, that see, that's that's. Um, I don't know that work, so I'm 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 excited. The Father Son Recommendation Day. That's great. Amazing. Okay, so Abe recommends uh, Inside Story by Christopher by Christopher <laughs> Inside Story by Martin Amos and Surprise Second Recommendation. We are all guilty by Kingsley Amos, uh, and. Uh, that's then we had an interesting, you know, airy fairy literary conversation here to conclude our podcast. So, with uh, and then yesterday I recommended 
the fifth season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Sam by Allegra Goodman. So uh, tomorrow, who's up tomorrow? Christina's up tomorrow. Okay. So we will uh, be back tomorrow. The podcast will drop late tomorrow, just to let people know. I don't think we're going to be able to release it until around noon Eastern or a little later. So just um, don't 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 get worried if it's not in your feed uh, in the morning. Um, but uh, and that'll be true for the rest of the week. Anyway, uh, till then, for Abe, Christine, and Madam John Pothorts, keep the candle burning.